I was somewhat relieved this morning when I got to church and I went back and picked up a bulletin and I opened it up and looked at the sermon line where it said 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-14 to and right next to it it said, Justin Harris. <laughs> and I thought, oh good, I'm off the hook. <laughs> and apparently not. So I think the best way to start this morning is with a question. And that question is, what would happen if young people never grew up? If kids never developed and took on the responsibility of adulthood? I don't think that we have to look very far for an answer to that question, in that it's kind of become a cultural phenomenon. In fact, there is now a new phase of life uh, that, that experts are talking about between adolescence and adulthood, and it has multiple names. Um, some people call it adultolescence. Other people call it emerging adults. You may have heard it referred to as twixters, but it's also been referred to as the Peter Pan syndrome. You may think of the movie Peter Pan, and Peter Pan sings at one point, I won't grow up, I won't grow up, I don't want to grow up, I don't want to grow up. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, spoken much about this idea, much about this topic. And as he is speaking, as he is writing on this topic, he wrote the following. It says this. It says, looking at this from a biblical perspective, the most tragic aspect of this development is the fact that these young people are refusing to enter the adult experience and adult responsibilities that is their Christian calling. The delay of marriage will exact an undeniable social toll in terms of delayed parenthood, even smaller families, and more self-centered parents. The experience of marriage and the raising of children are important parts of learning the adult experience and finding one's way into the deep responsibilities and incalculable rewards of genuine adulthood. Albert Moeller certainly finds this issue important. Uh, sociologists do as well as they are studying the issue and looking for consequences in our society to this, this trend that's happening. Some of, the, some of the things that they believe are going to be happening are delayed marriage, delayed children as a result of that, smaller families as a result of that. They also believe that there'll be, a, among young people that are growing older, a bloated self-centeredness. And as a result of that, a massive discontentment with careers as they work through life. What's interesting is the same thing could happen, very easily happen in the body of Christ. We could very easily experience the consequences of spiritual immaturity. But just what could those consequences be? What are the consequences of spiritual stagnation? of perpetual, ongoing spiritual maturity. Why? Why is it that we need to grow? I've really appreciated, over the past, I don't know how many months, our study of Mark. Um, It's been just a a sweet time for our body. Uh, Some of the things I've appreciated are the uh, focus on the gospel. We hear week in and week out about the gospel. It's replanted into the hearts and minds of believers here and the importance of it in our lives. But we've also heard about the result of the gospel. 
the tremendous expectations that should occur as a result of our life of faith in Christ. We've heard terms like radical discipleship. We've heard attitudes that ought to be expressed or a part of our lives like humility, selflessness. Even we've heard terms like persecution. Jesus seemed to be, as we've read through Mark, extremely focused, incredibly focused, on not just the salvation of these people that he was speaking to and interacting with, but on the result of that salvation, on the result of their changed hearts and the resulting attitudes and actions that came as they walked through life. Um, Therefore, one of the things I wanted to do this morning, or what I wanted to accomplish this morning, is I thought it would be good if we spent some time talking about just that, about practical aspects of growing in Christ, practical aspects of spiritual maturity. It seems good and appropriate that we spend time looking at that and just try to put some legs on this idea of what should our lives look like as we move forward. Uh, therefore, I want you to turn to Second Peter. If you could turn to Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 14 this morning. As you turn there, I want to give you a little um, information about the book of Second Peter. It kind of sets the context of our study this morning. Second uh, Peter um, provides answers, first of all, to the whys of spiritual maturity. It provides answers to the hows of spiritual maturity. And it even uh, provides answers to the, is it worth it to walk this Christian walk? Uh, and we'll find all those three things this morning. Second Peter was written by Peter. Uh, Peter was one of the apostles that we've studied in Mark, and we've heard a lot about him in Mark. And in fact, as the study of Mark goes forward, we're going to be even hearing more about this man. Uh, he was very close to Jesus as he walked through and had lots of interaction uh, as an apostle. Uh, as he is writing the book, Peter is near the end of his life. He is, and, and what's interesting is he's not just near the end of his life, he knows he's near the end of his life. He knows his life is coming to an end soon, and it's one of his motivations in writing the book. And so as he's writing that, um, he's teaching Christians how to live. In fact, the purpose of the book is to teach Christians how to live in difficult times, um, times filled with false teachers, subject of the book, evil influences, rampant immorality, and even scoffers of the faith. I think that I'm going to reread that list. It's an interesting list. It's false teachers, evil influence, rampant immorality, and even scoffers of the faith. And I reread that because I think those are some of the same things that we face as believers in the culture that we live in. Uh, He understood that they must be mature to be successful in light of those things. He begins with instruction on the lifelong process of spiritual maturity. And as he walks through that section in these first 14 verses, it's split into three aspects. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is, number one, we're going to talk about the foundation of our spiritual maturity in verses 1 through 4. Then when we finish that, we're going to talk about the function of our spiritual maturity in verses 5 through 7. And finally, we're going to talk about the fruit of our spiritual maturity in verses 8 through 14. In the first four verses, Peter describes the foundation of our spiritual maturity. 
by explaining the quality and the impact of our salvation. And as he's reading this and as we go through this, the intent is to be motivational. He's talking about their salvation in order to be motivational to a mature Christian walk. As we go through the passage this morning, I'm going to break it up into those three sections and we're going to read each of those sections one at a time uh, as we hit that part. So uh, let's start with verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together as we move forward. It says this in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. As Peter works to develop the foundation of our spiritual maturity, he does so by briefly identifying several truths regarding our salvation that create a solid foundation for our maturing process. First, he explains the quality of our salvation. The quality of our salvation. Right after Peter introduces himself, he introduces his audience. And as he introduces his audience, the words he uses are significant and create some powerful assertions regarding our salvation. First, there at the end of verse 1, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Uh, To those who have obtained... That word obtained is a significant word. It means to have received by lot. And as Peter is talking about that idea, that phraseology that he's using is important because it speaks to the sovereignty of God. Um, One of the things I've appreciated here of faith as well is uh, the, the, the principles that we hold high. And one of those is a high view of God, humble view of man. And as we talk about those ideas, that's the idea that's here. This is a high view of God. That what is done, uh, the idea here is that man has done nothing. Man has done nothing during his salvation. God has done everything to certain his salvation. We're not here because we've earned it. We're not here because we deserve it. We're here because of what God has done. That same idea is, in, uh, is also... Um, suggested at the end of verse 1 where it says, uh, I'll read it, it says, faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our, our salvation is by the righteousness of God, not our own. In addition to that, he talks about as he's introducing this audience, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours. I love those words. A faith of equal standing to ours. They are, it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament, in the entire scriptures. Um, And it means a faith, or it means of equal honor, of equal value. So Peter is saying something significant to this audience. Think of this, this is Peter. (laughs) Peter walked with Christ. He's just lived an entire life of, 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 of increasing spiritual maturity. And what he's telling his readers is, 
hey, the faith that I have is the faith that you have. It's the same. There's no hierarchy of belief. There's no extended expectation of the apostles. It was the same selflessness, the same humility. They were called to the same radical discipleship that Peter is. The exact same. It's it's an interesting position that he sets there at the beginning. I'm going to skip over verse 2. We're going to talk about verse 2 later in the passage. We're going to move on to verse 3 where he starts to remind them of the impact of their salvation. There's an impact as well. In verse 3 it says, His divine power has granted to them all that they need for life and godliness. His divine power has granted to them. His divine power means the power of Christ to save sinners. That's the power that they're referring to. Christ's power, Christ's ability to save sinners. Um, And as a result of that power, we have salvation. And as a result of that salvation, we have the ability to live godly lives to his own glory and to his excellence. We have the ability, we have a new capacity to live lives that are pleasing to him and that bring glory to him. Yet even in godly living, remember that we are saved by his excellence and glory. In verse 4, there's a second impact is given, and that is that the result of their salvation is that there were precious promises that were motivated toward godly living. I'll read that verse again for you. It says, by which he has granted to us, or by his own glory and his excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of his divine glory. What are those promises? I don't think they're mentioned in this passage. (laughs) Um, But there are many. There are many promises as we look through Scripture. Uh, that we have as believers. And in fact, uh, many of the commentators that write on this suggest that those promises may be the very same promises that Peter writes about in 1 Peter. 1 Peter goes through a very same format at at the initial where he's trying to motivate his believers towards something. And one of the things he uses in 1 Peter is some promises. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he promises the believer's inheritance. We have an inheritance as a... as it, it, in our salvation. Uh, in 1 Peter 1.9, he talks about the return of Christ. That is something that we have to look forward to. So, it begs the question, what motivates us? What is it that motivates us in our Christian walk? If you are a believer, one of our motivations to walk as we ought to walk is the precious promises that we have, uh, the opportunities that are before us, the opportunities of eternal life the opportunities of inheritance and the return of Christ. If you are not a believer this morning, those promises have no impact. There's a significant difference, a significant line there. Verse 4 says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. It says that, or it's, it, that's suggesting that we have all we need. But we often don't live this way. Often we are impacted in another way. Uh, just by circumstances of life. I think of a cook who is uh, missing an ingredient or a handyman who's missing a tool uh, to finish the job. Often we think of our lives in that way, like there's something missing. There's something stopping us from walking in spiritual maturity. I think about that same example in another way. Think of that same cook or that same handyman that isn't even starting the job 
because he doesn't have the confidence to do it. He doesn't believe he has what it takes within him to actually complete the task or to work on spiritual maturity. Peter tells us that's not correct. (laughs) Peter tells us as Christians, we have everything that we need. Everything that we need. As Christians, sometimes we can look at some past experiences or sin, and that stops us in our tracks uh, from growing spiritually mature. Sometimes a current situation that we believe in our mind disqualifies us uh, from maturity and from glorifying God in that. That you might even believe that because of your age <laughs> that you no longer qualify or it no longer matters or important. Peter calls us away from those ideas and toward the idea that no, we have everything we need to work towards spiritual maturity. I even have a smile on my notes here because I tend not to smile when I talk. (laughs) And uh, this is supposed to be encouraging. (laughs) This is supposed to be something that excites us as a Christian. This is something that we're supposed to be... uh, uh, Put a smile on our face. So then, we have seen how God provides the foundation of spiritual maturity. In the next three verses, Peter describes the function of our spiritual maturity in verses 5 to 7. What should be true as a result of our salvation? How should our spiritual maturity function? What should it look like? So in verses 5 to 7, it says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Because of the divine nature that we have, we are now partakers. In other words, we can supplement our faith with these seven virtues. These are seven areas that the believer ought to be working on in an effort to live godly lives, in an effort to mature as a Christian. It's an interesting list. Peter, as he works through this, if I were doing this list, I'm not Peter, if I were doing this list, I'd want to go into deep definition and impacts of each of this list. Peter doesn't do that. He just names the seven virtues. And so in honor of that, I'm going to do the same. We're just going to name them. I'm going to give a very brief explanation of each without expanding on too much on any. And then what I want to do is to make multiple observations about the group of them. So let's begin. The first of the seven aspects that should be true in a maturing believer's life is virtue. Some of your Bible versions might say goodness there. It's actually goodness in action would be a good working definition of virtue. Goodness in action or a moral excellency. And then I would add to that moral excellency a good dose of courage, fortitude, and resolution. It's being resolute about being good. It's being resolute about being morally excellent. Right? That's number one. The second one is knowledge or discretion. Another word used here is prudence, which I don't think most people know the definition of. Prudence would be defined as understanding and therefore taking care of the future. It's a spiritual knowledge, which comes from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The focus of the Word here is more on the facts. And I point that out because we're going to be talking about knowledge in a different context later in the service. But here it's more focused uh, on the facts, on the information. 
The next word is self-control. We are to be self-controlled in our maturing process. Self-control is having one's passions under control. Having one's passions under control. Next is steadfastness. Steadfastness is perseverance or to remain under. It's a patient endurance in difficult times. Steadfastness. Next is godliness. Godliness is a reverence towards God. It's being devout. It's being totally committed. If I were a sports team and I were looking for this quality, I've seen even on t-shirts, they would say all in. It's being all in. Uh, That's what this idea of godliness is. Uh, Brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is a brotherly love. It's a fervent, practical caring for others. And finally, love. And love is, is, as it's written here, is desiring the highest good for others. It's It's what God exhibits towards sin. It's that same love that God exhibits towards sin. So, looking at that list and seeing those, those seven definitions and knowing that Peter just lists them, I think just in the list we can draw multiple observations from them. First, this list is not to be just passively pursued. These things, as a result of being a Christian, don't just happen. They have to be worked on. And in fact, back in verse 5 of this section, Peter says, make every effort. Make every effort to add. And when he says that, that means diligently. Diligently work on this, or a better word. Work on this with zeal. I'm working on this diligently and with zeal. Those are the kind of words that I think need added legs. And I was thinking about a good uh, illustration I could use to describe what does it mean to have zeal? What does it mean to really... Diligent zeal, what's that look like? And I was reminded of a friend of mine uh, back in Ohio... His name was Doug Bear. Doug Bear is dead now. He's about my age. And um, uh, the last time I saw Doug Bear, he was in a physical therapy unit in a nursing home. Uh, Doug had gotten in a terrible car accident. Multiple people in the car were killed. And Doug, as a result, had brain damage and was in um, a physical therapy unit in a nursing home. And so I used to go visit Doug and talk to him, try to talk to him, it was difficult to understand uh, him. And, and so as I was talking to him, often while I was there, he was in physical therapy. And uh, there would be a physical therapist there working with him, and they were trying to teach him or reteach him how to move, <laughs> how to uh, learn to bend his knee again or learn to raise his arm again. And as I was sitting there talking to him and watching him, he was intent. It was every fiber of his focus was working at moving that arm, at trying to figure out how to do that again, uh, with, with confusion sometimes, but still every effort. And what's interesting about that effort he was making is I had lots of conversations with Doug before that. Doug was a new Christian when I met him, and he talked about this idea of zeal, of diligence, of working on his salvation. And as he was talking about that, he talked about his experiences in basketball, Doug was a basketball star in high school. Um, And uh, after high school, he got a full-ride scholarship to the University of Dayton. And he contrasted, to prove this idea of zeal to me, he contrasted the high school basketball to basketball at the University of Dayton. 
And in those years, Dayton was a nationally renowned program. They played the Indianas, the, the, the big teams across the country. It was a good scholarship. And he said when he got there, it was completely different. In high school, he could just mess around in the drills. It wasn't hard to beat the guys he was playing with. But he said it all changed when he went to college. And he described this drill where you'd be coming down the court, or your, your def, your, the offensive players coming down the court, and it was your job as the defender to stop him, to get in front of him and make him change direction, to slow him down as he's coming down the court. So when he goes this way, you go that way. When he moves, you have to run and get in front of him. And he said, as I was doing that drill, he said, it took every fiber of physical, of physical effort I had to do it, to accomplish it. He said, more than that, he said, if my mind slipped for just a split second, if I lost concentration for just a split second, uh, I lost it and I got beat badly. <laughs> he said, it just took complete diligence complete zeal. I think that's the kind of word Peter is looking at here as he's describing this. It's the kind of effort he wants us to make in working towards spiritual maturity. Another observation. A straightforward reading of these qualities suggests that they build on one another. In fact, for much of this was a favorite passage of mine, and for much of my life I thought, as I was reading it, uh, that you add to your faith uh, virtue, and I add to virtue knowledge, and I add to knowledge self-control. In other words, it was almost as though it were a stair step where I was building one, and then as I got good at that, I was building the next one. Now, as I studied that further, there's lots of evidence even in the wording of the Scripture that that's not true. But I think the best, I, the best support of the idea that that's not true, that it's not a building, that instead it's a, a more of a chorus where we're working on this together, it's just logic. If I were to come to you and say, brother, I cannot show kindness to you today because I haven't really got self-control done yet. And if, once I get self-control, then I'm going to work on kindness. If I were to say it, you'd say, that's ridiculous. That doesn't work. And he's right. It doesn't work. The idea here is that we are to be working on all of these attributes all of the time. We're to be working on every one of them the expectation is that they are all present, that they are all functioning uh, in our life. The next um, <clears throat> observation I'd like to make about it is that I don't think that this list is even complete. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We can look at this passage and compare it to other passages in Scripture, uh, like the passage with the fruit of the Spirit. And they list different things. They list some of the same things, but they list different things as well. Even, if our, even in our Bible reading this morning, uh, our scripture reading this morning in Philippians 3, there were uh, attributes that Paul stated there that aren't stated here. And so what's Paul saying? Is he limiting the list? I don't think so. I think what Paul's trying to do is convey a message that our entire lives ought to be working towards spiritual maturity. Every aspect of us, everything that we do, ought to be working toward that goal. We're not to be holding back pieces of the pie. We're not to be, it's the whole pie. It's our whole life is uh, what Christ or what Peter is suggesting. We ought to be handing over to God in, in working towards this idea of maturity. What does 
that. I want to just kind of make a mental picture here. What does that constant walk look like as we're working towards spiritual maturity? What does it look like as we apply this chorus of attributes, um, this symphony of, of, of ways of living as we look at it in our lives? What does it look like tomorrow when we're alone or when we're with our family or our neighbors or coworkers? What does it look like as it continues to grow next week, next year, in 10 years? Or what does that look like over a lifetime? I see a Christian that is increasingly, increasingly impacting their culture with the gospel of Christ. Increasingly encouraging one another in their words, in their obedience, and increasingly bringing glory to God. Think of the impact for a church when the entire body of believers is moving in this direction and interacting with each other toward this idea of Christian maturity. I think that's powerful. Two considerations. One for the believer. These attributes are to serve as reminders. As a result of your salvation, you are able to glorify God as you move toward Christian maturity. You can do it. You should do it. It's possible. We can work that way. Uh, for unbelievers, I want to say something there as well. Uh, do not be confused. Salvation is the only way to justify ourselves before our God. These attributes are attainable in their entirety only as a result of salvation. It's the only way they can be there. All right, so... That's our second point. We have uh, seen the foundation of our spiritual maturity. We have looked at the function of our spiritual maturity. Now let's spend some time looking at the fruit of our spiritual maturity. When we use the word fruit here, um, practical words we can use in place of fruit would be consequences. What are the consequences of our spiritual maturity? What are, what's the result of our spiritual maturity? Let's read verses 8 through 11, where it begins to talk about that, those ideas. It says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 8 begins by providing us with an excellent picture, an excellent definition of the maturing Christian. Exactly what a maturing Christian looks like. It says this, for if these qualities are yours, and if they are increasing, you'll be effective and fruitful, is the implication. What is the picture of the maturing Christian? First, all of these qualities are present. All of these qualities are present. There's a contrast there. We could say versus the idea that some of these qualities are present. But I don't think that's the intention here. It's much like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 where that word fruit is not a plural, it's a singular. 
Uh, same idea here. The intention is, is that all of these things are going to be working and interacting in our lives. In fact, if just one or two of these things are working and active in your life, I don't believe that's a sign or an evidence of spiritual maturity. It could very easily be just a propensity of yours. You might be naturally self-controlled. It just might be the way you were born. I'm not, <laughs> but you might be. And uh, as a result of that, you can't just look at the principle of self-control and, uh, and uh, say, yes, that's an evidence of my, of my spiritual maturity. The evidence is all of these things are working and evident and growing in our lives. Second idea there of that maturing Christian is that these qualities are increasing. They're increasing. There are so many examples we give this. I, I, I tend to think of this in multiple ways. I think of this as a spiral, as our spiritual walk is a spiral going upward. And as we're increasing, we're getting stronger and stronger. Uh, the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book, uh, they, 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 they reference this by they're going further up and further in in their spiritual walk. It's an ever-increasing, and as they go up and as they go in, it's better and better and better. It's a better place to be than they were before, and that's what he's describing here, an increasing faith, an increasing maturity. In addition to that, this takes us to an awesome result of our spiritual maturity, and that is knowledge. I told you that we would wait on verse 2. Uh, that word knowledge is significant in this passage. In fact, it's significant to the entire book of Second Peter. Uh, this word knowledge is different from the word knowledge that's used in verse 5. Um, it's, a, it's a knowledge that includes words like intimacy, knowledge that includes participation, knowledge that includes experience, or knowledge that is reinforced uh, through, through those same experiences. As I think about that idea and how to, how to convey it, I think of my relationship with my wife. Uh, one of the things my wife and I like to do, actually she likes to do it more than me, <laughs> is uh, go for walks together. Um, she drags me along, but when I'm done, I'm glad I've done it every time. And the reason I'm glad we've done it is because when we walk, we talk. And when we talk, uh, we grow closer together. Those talks that we have are sometimes just casual and fun. Sometimes they go into something very serious, or sometimes they're even difficult times that we're uh, working through as we walk together. But nevertheless, as we walk, as we work through those things, uh, there is a drawing together. The things that I knew that were true, in fact, that she loves me, uh, that we're married, that there's a commitment to each other, grow more true, more evident. I understand them better as we communicate, as we grow in relationship, as we walk together. That's that idea of knowledge that's presented here, that, uh, we, uh, that it's uh, a better place to be. I often think when I'm thinking about this idea, I think of older people in the faith, uh, people that um, I came to respect or had a, a, a very strong spiritual influence in my life and uh, that you could tell had walked. <laughs> in fact, that's how I would describe them. I would describe them as having walked a long way with their Lord. They've just walked a long way with them. 
And in that, there's a relationship that's settled. There's a relationship that they can rest in, that they're confident in. And that, to me, is a significant result, an awesome result of our spiritual maturity and something that, that Peter is encouraging the believers in. Um, because of its ongoing nature and increasing nature, Peter, Peter expresses knowledge as both a foundation of our spiritual maturity, back in verse 2. He's motivating that way. It's foundational because it builds on one another. But it's also a true blessing here in verse 8. It's a blessing in verse 8. And it's interesting that that's coming from Peter, who had lived a life of it. What a blessing it is to grow in this knowledge as it brings multiplied grace and peace and multiplied effectiveness and fruitfulness. Verse 9 then provides us with a negative result of this failure in these attributes. One of those negative results is that we are spiritually blind. In fact, in verse 9 it says, uh, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It also so it describes them as blind or nearsighted. Myopia would be the word that's used here. He can see what is near, but is blind to the extended spiritual impacts of his actions and lifestyle. In addition to that, he's forgotten. He's forgotten the significance of his own salvation. That's why I think it's so important here at Faith Bible Church that we continue to talk about the gospel that we continue to remind each other of the saving faith that we have. It's, a, it's an opportunity for each of us, week in and week out, to remember and to not forget. Moving on to verse 10. Uh, 10 verse 10 provides us with an additional fruit of our spiritual maturity, and that is it confirms our calling. In other words, it confirms our salvation. A benefit of ever-increasing spiritual maturity is an assurance of salvation. We can increasingly rest in it. We can increasingly have peace in it. In addition to that, it says you will never fall. Practicing your walk, just like practicing anything, practicing your walk makes you more faithful in it. It gives you stability in your spiritual walk. What a wonderful condition of rest and peace this truth provides in our lives. As I consider all that could be going on in, in the lives of this room this morning, I believe we should be encouraged in this fruit, in these results of our salvation. If you are struggling this morning with a sin, a moral sin like lust or pornography, I think the message here is that it is worth the battle to employ all that God has given you to overcome. It is worth it to do whatever you have to do to overcome. The other side is better. Uh, spiritual maturity is better. If you are battling with feelings of selfishness or loneliness or even uselessness, know that God has given you all that you need to glorify God or to glorify Him, and it is worth the fight to overcome those emotions and move forward. If you are struggling honoring God in a relationship or responsibility. Again, God has supplied all that we need to mature and glorify him. I think of very personal situations. One that came to mind 
as I was doing this, uh, preparing for this, is uh, I have a friend. There's some friends in Ohio uh, way back, and, and they decided as a family uh, to adopt a young boy from the Philippines. And uh, as they adopted him, they quickly learned once he was here and theirs that he had significant problems, um, not just physical problems, but deep, deeply seated emotional problems that they lived with over the next 20 years. And the, 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 the problems were such that they totally occupied their family for a 20-year period. Uh, just total discouragement, complete frustration as they'd work and work with this young boy, and he rejected every advance uh, that they made towards relationship with him. And as they were walking through that, it just is wearisome. It's difficult. And when I think of something difficult like that, even in those situations, we have all that we need uh, to work towards spiritual maturity. We have all that uh, God has given us all that we need. Peter has lived a life, and he is telling his readers that it is worth it. It's worth it both now, and it is worth it in eternity. I love his testimony here. In conclusion, as we close, we're going to close with some additional scripture. I want you to remember back to Peter's purpose in writing the letter. Was to, his purpose was to instruct believers on how to live as Christians in difficult times, filled with false teachers, rampant immorality, even scoffers of the faith and lots of evil influences. His initial answer to that question was spiritual maturity. That's how you do it. That's how you live in that environment, as represented by these seven qualities. But verse 12 to 14 indicate just how strongly Peter felt about the idea, how strongly Peter felt about the principle. And let's read that together, verses 12 to 14. It says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will, will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. When I was uh, reading through this and trying to think how to make that idea significant, I, st- I looked up on the Internet um, multiple um, things that people said on their deathbeds, people that were about to die, significant things, uh, to try to bring some comparison here. And the problem is, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, as I look at those things, people said, they just paled in comparison to this. It, it didn't, didn't work. Um, uh, what Peter says here is just so significant. We have, a, we have a man here that walked with Christ and after Christ's death, lived for Christ. He was deeply mature in his walk with the Lord. And what he's telling us as believers is, it is worth it. It's worth it. And in fact, it was so worth it that when he's on his last days, when he knew soon he's dying, and he wanted to communicate an idea uh, to these believers, what did he talk about? He talked about their spiritual maturity. He talked about the need for them to grow in Christ. That's what he's saying. Um, so then, um, it seems reasonable. <laughs> that those same priorities, this same priority, ought to be ours as well. We ought to be continually 
established in the truth of the gospel. We ought to remember the foundations uh, that Peter describes here. We should be practicing and growing in these qualities in our lives, these qualities and more. Uh, And that we should make every effort to encourage one another in this effort. And we should maintain this urgency as we walk ahead. Um, I had intended, uh, as I was writing down my notes, to have kind of a winding down period here in the sermon. It seems like that's what you should do when you're preaching. Um, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. I I want to leave on a high note. And I want to leave us um, thinking about, um, strongly uh, considering uh, these principles of spiritual maturity in our lives as we move forward. Why don't we pray together? Father, I thank you for the morning. Father, I especially thank you for uh, the salvation that we have in you. I thank you that we have the opportunity because of the power that you have given us uh, to walk lives, to to walk in lives that are uh, pleasing to you, that that are glorifying to you. Father, I thank you uh, for uh, the truth of Scripture that tells us that walking this life is worth it. It's worth it uh, to walk a life towards spiritual maturity. It's worth it now, and it's worth it in eternity. And I appreciate that. Thank you for it. Father, I pray for this body. I pray that each one uh, would be working on these attributes uh, towards spiritual maturity. Father, I pray that as we walk, we will be an encouragement to one another in our testimony as we walk before one another. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.